0: Hello, and thank you for joining us today. It is a COVID special, and this is a little bit of an introduction before we get right on into it. Uh, as you can see, it's a bigger special than usual. I promise. I mostly keep uh, all of my commentary to myself, even though we're going to be talking about some pretty big political uh, stuff and events, I promise. Uh, I do have <laughs> I do have an issue where I call a New York's Time author an idiot. Apologies. I got a little hot. I do the math on that one, though, and I show you why I'm not okay with this journalist in this institution uh, (laughs) forwarding a particular narrative uh, in this last week that they have. So uh, beyond that, I just wanted to go ahead and do a real quick introduction because I will be reading for 40 minutes at the beginning here right after this. Uh, just an article in full, verbatim, or near it. I slip up a couple times because, you know, I'm reading. But uh, just about verbatim, uh, and absolutely no editing whatsoever, or editorializing, uh, just a straight read-through. And if you did listen to this, what's the matter with the CDC 50-minute long read, uh, sorry, listen, uh, that I that I pointed to a couple of uh, months back, please do go ahead. Uh, and if you're interested after what we talk about today, I advise you to go back and listen to that uh, article. New York Times, what's the matter with the CDC, I believe was the, let me just, hold on, I'll be right back. Phew, that's that's the noise I make when I've magically returned. Uh, <laughs> the artist, or sorry, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the name of that author is Janine Interlandi, I-N-T-E-R-L-A-N-D-I, uh, and the actual title is, Can the CDC Be Fixed? Uh, it is, in, in fact, a uh, pretty uh, great piece of reporting. It is—I just scrolled through it real quick just to make sure that I was sending somebody back to the good thing. And I, I have to say, it's so much funnier now. I, I made this comment about, like, oh, all the additional lines that they added about now the pandemic is over. <laughs> uh did not age well. But besides that— besides those six or seven times that they insist that the pandemic is now in the rear view, uh, and will always be, ah, New York Times, will you ever stop being the optimist? Uh, And that is New York Times Magazine, uh, not the official papers, New York Times Magazine, Janine Interlandi, COVID proved the CDC is broken, can it be fixed? Uh, Okay, and now the article that I'm going to be reading today, that hopefully you'll find a little bit interesting, Oh, I'm back again because I forgot to look it up. uh, I'm still kind of learning this shit, I guess. This is basic stuff, too. Maybe I shouldn't be so hard on others. Uh, The name of this particular article that you'll be hearing today is Inside America's COVID Reporting Breakdown. Crashing computers, three-week delays, tracking infections, lab results delivered by snail mail, state officials detail a vast failure to identify hotspots quickly enough to prevent outbreaks. Woof! And if you think that's a mouthful, again, it's going to go on for about 40 minutes from here. Uh, That—or, sorry, it's going to go on right now, pretty much, uh, for 40 minutes. And then after that, there's an hour in which I talk—sorry, the author of that is Aaron Banco, B-A-N-C-O, and that is Politico. Politico. Believe it or not. What Slugline was making fun of in House of Cards. (laughs) And it's just— One of the best COVID articles in any fucking country that's been written yet, and it's just really good. So uh, we're going to tee that up. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about Israel, Israel's COVID outbreak, their fourth wave, what's going on with that? Not really in the US news, which is unfortunate. The UK curve, talk a little bit about India. And then we're going to end with a little just dunking on Margaret Thatcher in the UK for no reason, because those stories were funny, and I needed them the last couple of minutes. So, Here's a big old COVID update. Again, you're going to be listening to that Banco piece for the next 40 minutes, and then after that, uh, if you still want to listen, go ahead and continue on. It's about where we're at in America. It's using Israel and the UK to talk about where America is and is heading with a little analysis on where we're at that I haven't seen anywhere else at all with all the reading that I've done, which is pretty surprising. Uh, Okay, here we go. COVID update, whatever the hell I end up calling this one, begins now. There were too many cases to count. COVID-19 was spreading rapidly throughout the United States as cold winter weather began to drive people indoors, but the Center for Disease Control and Prevention was flying blind. The state agencies that it relied on were way behind in their tracking, with numbers trickling in from labs by fax or even snail mail. In Oklahoma, Dr. Jared Taylor, Oklahoma's lead state epidemiologist, couldn't see the full picture. Inside the state's department in Oklahoma City, staffers shuffled through piles of paper they pulled out of fax machines and sorted through hundreds of secure emails to upload COVID-19 lab results manually to the state's digital dashboard, a system that often malfunctioned. Other employees desperately tried to work with labs, many of whom had not worked with the state previously, to walk them through the process of sending results electronically. When the data came in, state employees routinely found errors. Instances where a person was counted twice or two people with the same name were identified as a single patient. Meanwhile, in an old shopping mall on the other side of town, hundreds of volunteers sat at desks with telephones and checklists. Their goal, contact as many infected people as possible. But they couldn't keep up. From the end of September to the end of December, Individuals with COVID-19 monitored by the Oklahoma Health Department decreased by 65%, while the number of positive cases increased by 205%, according to the findings of the state investigation. We had a homegrown, customized system for disease investigation that was not amenable to the case volume that we saw, Taylor acknowledged. We were just running in so many directions. In April... Taylor reported that his department had found 1,300 positive cases that had fallen into the abyss. Three weeks later, Taylor stepped aside. He's currently serving the state agency in an advisory capacity. Oklahoma's struggle is America's. The CDC relies on states to identify and monitor viral outbreaks that, if uncontrolled, kill thousands of people. But the coronavirus exposed a patchwork system in which state officials struggled to control the spread of COVID-19 because their outdated surveillance systems did not allow them to collect and analyze data in real time, according to six-month political investigation that included the interviews with four dozen health officials in 25 states and more than a dozen current and former officials at the CDC and other federal health agencies. COVID-19 revealed this cobbled-together system's inability to accurately detect when and where the virus was spreading, so public health officials could intervene. Those fissures now loom even larger, as the Delta variant makes the quick identification of outbreaks and clusters even more crucial to containing the virus. A sense of surrender was common throughout the pandemic. Faced with underfunded and understaffed health departments, many state officials said that they were not able to adequately identify and contain outbreaks during surge periods. At many junctures, states had no choice but to ask COVID-positive individuals to conduct their own tracing. As public health officials saw it, the task of safeguarding their communities from COVID-19 was like jumping out of an airplane with a parachute peppered with holes. Officials were forced to try to patch their parachute while in free fall. Some found a way to the ground. Others did not. On a national level, the delays in receiving lab reports and broken chains of transmission impeded the federal government's understanding of COVID 19 spread throughout the country. In one of the most dramatic examples, during the deadly explosion of cases last winter, some states took weeks to gather and report their data, skewing the national COVID 19 picture. It was the holidays. Many health workers took vacations. The federal government was hit by the dual problem of vacations and officials rushing to get new jobs between administrations. Backlogs built up. In January 2021, the deadliest month of the pandemic, states were more than five weeks behind in submitting mortality data to the CDC, three senior federal officials told Politico. Under a deluge of new infections, states were three weeks behind in investigating COVID-19 cases more than a dozen state health officials said. The same problems may have been even more threatening in the next act of the COVID drama. We can't just assume that what we learned last fall is going to also apply now, said Dr. Jonathan Quick, a pandemic expert at the Rockefeller Foundation. When you get a variant that's more contagious and it's spreading in different age groups, you've got to increase your testing and make sure that you're sequencing. We really need to message differently because we know we've got a different enemy. But interviews with officials in more than two dozen states revealed that few felt prepared to meet the next round of challenges. Among Politico's findings, there was widespread awareness that the state health departments lacked sufficient funding and up-to-date technology, but the federal government continued to rely on state public health systems to report positive and negative cases and COVID-19 deaths. Despite the clear limitations of the Delta systems, local and state health officials were largely left to fend for themselves. Within the states, dozens of health departments relied on arcane programs, many of which used different technology to collect case information, investigate cases, and contain outbreaks in settings such as businesses, prisons, and nursing homes. The systems did not communicate with each other, which made it difficult for health officials to visualize where the virus was spreading and translate that information to the public in real time. The influx of people getting tested quickly overwhelmed even the biggest and most well-funded labs causing delays, sometimes by more than a week, in results being reported to the health departments, a time lag that upended contact tracing and containment efforts. Labs in almost every state did not send electronic data to state officials, who in turn reported to the federal government. Instead labs reported through a hodgepodge of outdated methods, including faxes, emails, and even the U.S. Postal Service. It could take state officials more than two weeks to receive and manually input lab data, delaying case investigations. During COVID-19 surges, health departments in more than 10 states stopped conducting case interviews and issuing quarantine orders for people in close contact with COVID-19 patients because there were simply too many cases to handle. Federal officials said that they were alarmed by what they saw in the states as discrete outbreaks quickly mushroomed into full-blown crises with scores of deaths. If state and local health departments had the information they needed in a more timely way and accessible to them in their systems, they could have intervened more quickly in a nursing home or a meatpacking plant, said Dr. Paula Yoon the director of the CDC's Division of Health Informatics and Surveillance. They could have intervened faster knowing what was going on, or even in terms of community spread, in a more timely way. In a statement to Politico, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky acknowledged that the country's public health infrastructure has been neglected for a long time. America depends on public health data that are both fast and right, Walensky said. To understand what is happening nationally, we first must have rich information locally, which is why CDC and our partners are implementing solutions that speed the flow of accurate health data. For decades, scientists warned that a pandemic would one day wreak havoc on global populations, potentially killing hundreds or thousands of people. The global health community needed to prepare, these scientists said. In a medical journal published in 1988, Joshua Lederberg, the Nobel Prize winner in physiology and medicine in 1958, and president of the Rockefeller University, wrote that after the emergence of AIDS, the world will face similar catastrophes again. We have too many illusions that we can, by writ, govern the remaining vital kingdoms, the microbes, that remain our competitors for last resort of domination of the planet, Lederberg wrote. The bacteria and viruses know nothing of national sovereignties. Since then, outbreaks have come at almost regular intervals. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, in 2003. The swine flu, known as H1N1, in 2009. The Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, in 2012. And Ebola, in 2014. With each came renewed demands from public health leaders to implement surveillance systems that could help contain diseases and save more lives. Despite those pleas, the United States did not commit the funding or organizational resources necessary to fight a pandemic like COVID-19. In interviews, current and former health officials in dozens of states attributed their struggles to decades of underfunding on both the federal and state level. And, they said, despite repeatedly asking the federal government for additional resources to improve their data systems to prepare for an infectious disease epidemic, public health departments were largely left to fend for themselves. Tom Fryden, the director of the CDC under President Barack Obama, acknowledged the failings at a hearing before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in March. Our nation had a patchwork of underfunded, understaffed, poorly-coordinated health departments, and decades-out-of-date data systems, none of which were equipped to handle a modern-day public health crisis. Since the 2008 recession, more than 35,000 state and local public health care jobs have vanished, according to data from the National Association on County and City Health Officials. In 2009 alone, 45% of local health departments reported having cut their budgets according to the same data. In Oklahoma, where Taylor and his team scrambled to fix COVID-19 data errors, the state legislature cut the health budget by 27% between 2009 and 2018. Health budgets in some places recovered slightly after the recession, during which states were forced to balance their budget despite massive shortfalls in tax revenues. And over the last two decades, Congress has allocated billions of dollars to help states prepare for major public health threats, but local and state officials said not enough of the federal funding went specifically to improvements of the country's surveillance systems and the data programs that run them. As a result, public health departments have fallen further and further behind. Still, it was more than a lack of funding that hampered data collection, many officials acknowledged. Over the years, some health officials struggled with the need for transformation— Local offices pushed back against moving away from systems and processes that they relied upon. Some bucked the idea of digitizing records. In 2013, top CDC officials concluded the agency needed a better strategy for strengthening the country's surveillance systems. One of the main components was to modernize the National Notifiable Diseases Surveillance System, NEDSS, the agency's national surveillance system that states used to report disease data to the federal government the agency began working on finding ways to create new IT infrastructure and standards. In the summer of 2013, only 62% of 20 million laboratory reports were being received electronically. The new five-year strategy called for increasing that number to 90%. The CDC used tens of millions of dollars allocated through the Affordable Care Act and congressional funding to help states across the country improve their electronic reporting and data systems over the next several years. And by 2019, About 85% of the nation's labs were reported electronically. Fryden created an entire Epidemiology and Surveillance Unit to strengthen surveillance at the agency and around the country. The CDC also created a program called Decipher, D-C-I-P-H-E-R, during the Ebola outbreak that allowed the agency, states, and other federal partners to share vital epidemiological data more easily. But local health officials said federal interest in continuing to rebuild the nation's capacity to surveil and report diseases eventually waned. Federal officials were increasingly of the belief that pandemics were not a top national security threat. After the Ebola outbreak of 2013 through 2016, the Obama administration developed a pandemic response playbook and embedded a team in the National Security Council. But President Donald Trump disbanded the NSC team folding some of the positions within the Directorate of Global Health Security and Biodefense into other departments. When COVID-19 emerged in January of 2020, health officials said they knew they were in trouble. Almost every state epidemiologist who spoke to Politico said that they ran mock COVID-19 crisis tests that revealed that the state public health surveillance system would likely struggle to function under an influx of cases. And they did. In Alabama, during surges, data systems crash from an influx of cases hitting the system. In Vermont, more than 1,300 of COVID-19 lab results in December 2020 were received through fax, email, or snail mail, not through the state's electronic reporting system. In Washington state, labs were up to 10 days late reporting COVID-19 results during peak periods. In Wyoming, the state health department had to deduplicate thousands of records in its electronic system each month to ensure positive results were only counted once. Every obstacle faced by public officials on the local level, every late lab result, every delayed isolation of a COVID patient, every time the case surveillance system shut down, impeded the national response to COVID-19. And if a state's positive rate was skewed, it changed the perception of the national picture for officials and scientists at the CDC. For Dr. Scott Lindquist, the top epidemiologist at Washington State, the slapstick efforts to collect COVID-19 data were the sad result of the flawed ways the US approaches public health. It was pretty obvious that you will always be behind in a health emergency response if you don't have the tools and if these tools are not modernized and capable of being able to respond appropriately. And that's what happened with COVID, unfortunately, Lindquist said. My biggest worry right now is that while we've all been talking about this transformational moment for public health, Americans are very good at siloing or forgetting and very quickly we're going to be on to the next thing. From the early reports of COVID-19 in January 2020, epidemiologists, virologists, and state officials said they knew they would face major obstacles in trying to track the virus, contain outbreaks, and prevent more people from contracting the deadly virus. Health departments for years had fought infectious diseases by examining lab results, contact tracing, opening outbreak investigations, and isolating those who were sick but no one had done so under pandemic conditions. In most states, each of those functions was handled separately, sometimes by different people, often with data systems that didn't intersect with one another. Picture the entire apparatus to track infectious diseases as a human body. One program acts like the brain, albeit a deficient one. It consumes lab results that include basic demographic information and creates patient records, but it can't always detect whether someone already exists in the system. It also cannot process non-electronic lab results. Health officials must manually enter such data into the system themselves. For many states, that system does not have control over the body's limbs, the programs used to manage the spread of the disease. The brain system can't always tell the limbs how to accurately use the available information to complete tasks, such as adding to an open case investigation or probing an outbreak. One of the limbs, the system designed for case management, requires individual health officials to interview patients about when their symptoms began and who they met before and after testing. Officials often have to manually enter the information into the database. Most state public agencies also use a separate program, the other limb, to track outbreaks in congregate settings like prisons and nursing homes. Many of those state systems, too, rely heavily on spreadsheets and manual data entry. While some states said their programs performed relatively well under pressure, for example, during the massive spikes in infection rates, dozens of public health agencies in states such as Oklahoma, Wyoming, Alabama, and New Mexico said their data systems were outdated, slow, and crashed when they received too many lab results at once and the impacted health department's ability to report timely and precise information to the CDC. I'm confident we have tracked the trends in New Mexico effectively, New Mexico's lead epidemiologist Chad Smiler said. But I wouldn't be able to tell you if we have 100% complete data. Because the systems do not always sync with one another, it was difficult to track COVID-positive individuals from their initial lab results as they traveled through the communities and then potentially to a hospital or long-term care facility. What we're looking for and trying to improve upon is the data collection and the efficiency. The ability to move quickly, follow people through the system, instead of having separate systems that you kind of have to try and combine to get a good answer, said Clay Van Hooten, Wyoming's infectious disease epidemiologist unit manager. Monica Rogers, division chief and data of technology of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Public Health Department, put it this way. Our state's reportable disease database was a legacy system that was not scalable to this kind of disease investigation and response. There have been noted times where the system would fail and they were trying to do an upload of cases. With small numbers, the epidemiological surveillance process is manageable, health officials said. But with COVID-19, it was unruly. In Washington state, health officials went from tracking 30,000 disease lab reports a month in 2019 to 30,000 a day during certain points of 2020. In Vermont, the state's health agency received 182 times more lab results in December 2020 compared to January 2020. COVID-19's ability to spread rapidly in the U.S., infecting dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and thousands of people per week, overwhelmed even the most well-funded and well-staffed public health departments, those in affluent states such as Washington, Oregon, and New York. In the pandemic, it was about 10 days for our lab test results to come in from the time of the specimen being collected. If you cut it down to two or three days or half a week, that's a significant increase. But it still means that there's still lag time within the system, Washington's Lindquist said. At CDC headquarters in Atlanta, officials soon began to see delays in reporting and gaps in data collection. The numbers were all over the place. Some states reported statistics with big gaps because certain counties or cities had failed to report their full health results. Other immediate issues was the health care providers and hospitals were either taking too long to report to the state health departments or not reporting at all. In the summer of 2020, the CDC was forced to implement a supplemental program, to scrape state and local public health departments' websites to get an aggregate count of COVID-19 cases and death counts, Yoon told Politico. We've been asked to provide real-time data on the status of cases down to the zip code, and you have to track race, ethnicity, age groups, tribal affiliations, incarcerated versus not incarcerated, hospitalized, and deceased, New Mexico's Smiler said, referring to the demands from the CDC. When you do not do that in a standardized fashion, is incredibly difficult to do in real time. It is, essentially, impossible. The data systems were particularly strained because the CDC mandated in the spring of 2020 that all local public health departments collect, track, and report both positive and negative COVID-19 results. The negative results helped officials calculate percent positivity, or the level of community transmission, but it represented a massive additional burden to departments long accustomed to collecting only positive results. In a lot of other diseases, you just need to know whether somebody is positive, Lindquist, the top epidemiologist in Washington state, said. In this case, you actually want to know when people are negative. We are handling volumes that we had not had to handle previously for that reason. And so even if the data systems over time are okay, when you get into a pandemic, then we just don't have the ability to handle as much volume. Some state public health officials scrambled to create new systems. Others moved to supplement their existing systems by relying on Excel spreadsheets to track data, like laboratory results. They stitched together systems, made it nearly impossible for health officials to understand the full scope of the pandemic, particularly in surge periods. Dr. Deborah Bricks, the former coordinator for the White House COVID-19 task force under Trump, as well as the senior official in Department for the Health and Human Services, pushed the CDC to find alternative ways to close the gaps in information, particularly hospital data. Ultimately, the Trump administration tried to go around the CDC to improve data collection. The main result was the HHS Protect Data Platform, an initiative by officials in the top ranks of the department, including Secretary Alex Azar. In addition to hospitals submitting their data directly to the CDC, the HHS Protect system forced them to manually submit their data to the teletracking, a private contractor. The CDC officials complained that they were being cut out of the reporting process and therefore could not ensure their data was accurate. Meanwhile, the CDC sent several experts out across the country to work with health departments to improve the data systems and organize surveillance processes. But it wasn't enough. Because we did not have the kind of centralized intelligence to identify, test for, and execute rapid containment, the U.S. missed our opportunity to contain the virus, concluded Charity Dean, California's former assistant director of the Department of Public Health. Dean said even her former office, one of the best-funded state health departments in the country, had a difficult time investigating every COVID-19 positive patient. On top of the structural flaws in the data systems and their intraoperability, public health officials were receiving COVID-19 lab reports through fax, secure email, and snail mail. In interviews with officials from dozens of public health agencies, all of them said at least some percentage of their COVID-19 lab results did not come in electronically. At the beginning of the pandemic, 85% of the nation's laboratories were electronic, though that percentage varied from state to state, Newton said. For example, Wyoming's health department said only 75% of the state's lab reports were electronic. But those numbers quickly fell off, sometimes dramatically, as more labs, sometimes including small global labs, opened up for COVID testing. Health officials described a chaotic year filled with 15- and 18-hour days in which workers, many of them volunteers from other parts of health departments, were forced to work next to fax machines, pulling hundreds of sheets of paper out of the rickety systems, only to have them rush back to their desks, open a spreadsheet, and type in the information. The same officials also had to print out emailed lab results and either repeat the manual entry process or copy and paste the information into the spreadsheet. And then there was snail mail. Officials constantly had to check postal rooms to see if anyone had sent results through the mail. Some labs did, and they often sent them in weekly or in bi-weekly batches. Dozens of public health departments said the new labs brought in to help handle COVID testing did not have the ability to report electronically. Some tried to implement HL7 messaging, a specific kind of electronic reporting, but often the lab struggled or failed because they had never used the HL7 program before. Some labs failed to attract crucial demographic data. We knew this well before the pandemic, that the bane of our existence was the fact that it takes a long time for people to report the effects of diseases of any kind of manual entry is going to slow the process down, said Mike Seema, an epidemiologist officer at the Arkansas Health Department. And that works to your detriment if you're dealing with a communicable disease in which time is of the essence. Multiple state epidemiologists said that inconsistent reporting of lab results skewed their understanding of the percentage of positive tests in any given week. Sometimes it looked as if there were far fewer or more cases of COVID-19 than there really were. Typically, before COVID-19, we took at least a year to clean up the data to make sure it was accurate. There was time for data quality, said Dr. Lillian Peake, Virginia State epidemiologist. With COVID, the only choice we had was to develop programming that automatically take the data and send it to our website every day. When you do that, there could be data entry errors. For the Utah Health Agency, the strain of onboarding lab results to the electronic system was more cumbersome than shifting manually through Excel spreadsheets. Officials in the state said that the health agency could not always synthesize COVID-19 results that did not come in electronically during surge periods. For other health agencies, teaching new labs on the use of electronic messaging wasted critical time and exhausted officials. It's time-consuming for us, making sure that the message integrity is intact, making sure that the content is corrected, said Virginia Fiolaski, Vermont's health surveillance epidemiologist. With all COVID-19's lab reporting, but particularly with non-electronic reporting, health officials had to clean the data. This meant going through what is known as the deduplication process, ensuring a patient is entered into the system only once. Oftentimes, when folks are entered into a database, a last name with two words gets separated into two very different patient files. And sometimes it'll be spelled wrong, Wyoming's Van Hooten said. And if I'm hospitalized, I'm repeatedly tested to see if I'm negative. If those get entered differently each time, then it looks like we've got all these new positives, when really maybe it's just one person. In New Mexico, officials said the state health agency was stretched to the limit by cleaning data that arrived, as if it had passed through a blender before being shot out in small, fragmented pieces. We have never to this date had somebody send us perfectly configured HL7 message right away, said New Mexico Smiller. If it is a simple fix, oh, we are putting in an asterisk when it needs to be a numerical value, that isn't a big deal. When is adjusting the system at the lab in order to split out better results, that takes resources that the labs might not have. In Vermont, a state of just 620,000 people that did not experience especially high rates of COVID-19, the public health department nonetheless said it stopped transferring negative results that did not come in electronically. There were simply too many positive lab results flowing in through snail mail fax and secure email in december 2020 alone we manually entered over 1300 results that were faxed or mailed or secure emailed to us that's a lot for us fielowski said for the negative case reporting piece of it if it's not electronic we're not hand entering negative results into our system because no one has the manpower in early february 2020 New York City doctors described patients arriving in emergency rooms complaining of shortness of breath and high fevers, and then dying less than 24 hours later. COVID-19 was still an unstudied virus, and healthcare workers weren't sure how to screen for symptoms or diagnose patients. It took weeks to figure out that individuals infected with the virus, particularly those with comorbidities such as obesity, had only a small window to seek treatment before the disease progressed so much that it could kill them. By that time... It was too late. COVID-19 had spread rapidly throughout the city. By March, hospitals were ordering refrigerated trucks to use as makeshift morgues. Meanwhile, in the rest of the United States, health agencies were scrambling to prepare for their own COVID-19 nightmares. Epidemiologists, doctors, and nurses vowed to identify COVID-positive individuals, isolate and treat them, while warning anyone who came into contact with them to isolate themselves immediately. Such contact tracing was seen as the only alternative to massive lockdowns, and for a fleeting moment, they thought they might succeed. But COVID-19 quickly overran their systems. The result was blanket public health announcements urging people who tested positive to isolate and ask their close contacts to quarantine as well. The game plan at that point was to do the best we could to gather enough information to be representative of the state and to be able to describe what's going on without actually having to necessarily talk with everybody, New Mexico Smelsler said. At the CDC in Atlanta, federal officials received daily and weekly reports from state health departments about positive COVID-19 cases, percent positivity, and deaths. But they did not have adequate county-level intelligence. Instead, they used anonymous mobility data cell phone data masked by providers, to understand areas of transmission and potential outbreaks. They also relied on emergency room admission numbers to predict which areas of the country would see a rise in cases. But without timely and meticulous contact tracing, the CDC could not fully appreciate how human behavior impacted the virus's ability to spread, federal officials said. State epidemiologists knew that they needed massive contact tracing programs to pinpoint potential outbreaks, particularly in congregate settings like nursing homes or restaurants. As cases increased, states either hired contractors or developed their own contact tracing programs. But it takes states months to build their contact tracing programs. Local health officials said it was difficult to train volunteers in short time span, and many ended up leaving their posts. Taylor, for one, relied on his staff of volunteers in the old shopping mall in Oklahoma City to call as many COVID-19-positive individuals as possible. But for all the resources the Oklahoma State Public Health Department poured into its contact tracing program, the state's Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency found out that the program had no measurable impact, according to a March report. The failure of contact tracing left the state unable to make database decisions on when to close facilities. A lot of that crucial data could have potentially been collected, and it might have been really helpful for policy decisions, said Rogers, Tulsa's division chief of data and technology. There's a few examples of that, where we were asking, should or should we not have, like, a gym close? Or is it safe to have them open? We can't really answer that question to advise policy if we don't have really robust data to back those decisions. Officials from dozens of states said failure to coordinate their own data systems prevented them from properly investigating outbreaks stemming from a certain restaurant, prison, or bar. If, for instance, a waitress from Jackson Hole tested positive, her lab result would eventually land with the state health department. Contact tracers would then reach out to her in hopes of determining her occupation and whether others in her same place of work had come down with symptoms. But in dozens of states, the waitress's answers to those initial investigations questions would not be automatically transferred into a system that allowed health officials to understand whether the restaurant had become COVID-19 hotspot or not. Many state outbreak management systems run separately from case investigation systems. The case investigation program has the ability to track one individual and record their COVID-19 status many outbreak management programs are designed to allow contact tracers and health officials to build out a profile of a specific facility, track transmission among a group of individuals, and plug in patient details as more individuals associate with that facility become sick. But because the patient data does not always automatically upload into the outbreak management system from the original case surveillance program, health officials are forced to manually re-enter information and use additional documents such as spreadsheets, to supplement their investigation. That leads to gaps in understanding how the virus spread through certain communities, officials said. For outbreak facility management, we don't have a very good tool right now, Fialowski, Vermont's health surveillance epidemiologist, said. Finding the actual true source of infection became more and more difficult, Wyoming's Van Hooten added. Early on, we were able to pretty much pinpoint and say this is where this person's been. We follow up, we see there's been a couple of other sick people there, and we get them tested. But as the virus became more widespread, it was hard to do that. People were in multiple situations, and every situation you'd look, there were other sick people. Another problem was identifying COVID-positive individuals from out-of-state who contracted the virus while visiting friends and family. Some states have systems that share information with one another, but many others do not. For example... If someone from New York tested positive in Vermont, Vermont's health department would have to contact New York to alert them. And if someone from Vermont contracted the virus while in Connecticut, the Connecticut Public Health Department would have to alert Vermont's. Having a more fleshed out robust contact tracing system in places that states can use across the borders would be beneficial, said Arkansas' SEMA, because at the end of the day, When you don't have medical countermeasures, the distance and isolation and quarantine are your number one public health interventions. You have to invest in that and make sure that's going to be your best bet for keeping people from getting sick. This spring, as new COVID-19 cases began to decrease and vaccination rates rose, public health officials across the country began to relax. The end of the pandemic seemed finally in sight. For many state health departments, that brought a sense of pride. They had managed to get through the worst health crisis in memory, and even though their resources often seemed desperately inadequate, they had soldiered on, despite the decades of neglect on the country's health public defenses. Not a single health official who spoke to Politico said their agency had been equipped to handle the pandemic like this one. But the rigging fixes to arcane data systems, bringing on volunteers, and pulling 15 to 18 hour days for more than a year, they'd helped save lives. I think we encourage our employees to take weekends or time away, but it's hard, Dr. Melissa Sutton, Senior Health Advisor for Oregon's Pandemic Response, said in April. This is very intense work, and we're all super invested in the outcomes, but that can be dangerous as well. I think we're heading into another surge. I predict that some of the same things that happened before will happen again. She was right. Doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers described a deep sense of anger and frustration that the wealthiest country in the world remains so ill prepared. The U.S. public health system was once seen as a global standard. The pandemic revealed how decades of neglect left it to slowly rot. My concern is that unless you have the case investigators with an information system that allows them to accurately, quickly, and flexibly collect information and use it as well, all of that information will be problematic," said Fryden, the former CDC director. That's why my fundamental point is that we need to fix the base of what the local health department uses to collect information, because if we don't do that, all of the other things that we collect are going to be inaccurate. The CDC was starting to think about the fixes just before the pandemic hit, in 2019 when it launched its Public Health Data Mobilization Initiative. The program is supposed to help state and local public health departments upgrade their systems. The CDC also wants to speed up lab reporting and ensure that test results are accompanied by the complete and accurate demographic data. Congress has allocated $500 million from the Coronavirus Aid Relief and the Economic Security CARES Act specifically for the data initiative. The program supplement funded by the CDC was already sending to states through the existing program founded in 1995. That focuses on fighting infectious diseases. Over the past year and a half, state and local officials have spoken with the CDC about the limitations of their systems and the need for a national approach to tracking outbreaks. We need to get those data exchanges between healthcare care and public health officials, laboratories, and public health and local health departments all to the CDC as electronic as possible, said Yoon, the CDC's director of the Division of Health Informatics and Surveillance. While state officials said that they are relieved the CDC has recognized the need for data modernization, they feel that the cash infusion was just a drop in the bucket. On May 28th, President Joe Biden asked Congress for approximately $9.6 billion to the CDC, a 22% increase. That includes $400 million for bolstering public health infrastructure broadly and $100 more million for data modernization. Even as public health departments start to focus on the future, they acknowledge that the problems that thwarted them in 2020 still exist today. Without immediate and widespread improvements, the U.S. is at risk of facing the same issues with the surveillance, containment, and outbreak management this year as it did over the course of last year. This was a big failure of effective tracking for the pandemic by nearly all, if not all, states, despite really hard work by really smart people, Freuden said. It's not going to be easy to fix. With the emergency of new, more transmissible variants, that possibility is becoming more real. As the latest surge begins this summer, officials said they felt exhausted, overworked, and in many cases, underpaid. And their staff had fled. A flu of health agencies said that their offices are hollowed out versions of their former selves, as dozens of officials, including lead epidemiologists, have left their posts. We're unfortunately now facing variants, and we're facing a public that is just tired of COVID and following the rule, said Dean Seidlinger, the state epidemiologist for Oregon Public Health. Just when things look a little bit better, another surge, another curveball comes in. There's only so much we can add to the workforce to make sure that we're managing this all well. So... Now that we've talked about that a little bit, uh, apologies for a transition here because I'm going to go from great reporting into much more personal, uh, much more casual reporting uh, as we talk about this just a little bit further. Uh, We need to talk about Israel. We need to talk about COVID and specifically this wave and what's going on in Israel right now. Because unfortunately, the only time that Israel is mentioned in America's media when it comes to Uh, COVID is when it comes to either we like the number because it's going down and therefore that's a prediction that all COVID will end here as well tomorrow, uh, or we're taking their data. We are, as Americans on Planet America and the rest of the world, quite frankly, uh, taking Israel's data and using it for our own informed health policies. You can actually find a number of articles out there referencing uh, top-level Biden administration officials expressing their incredible frustration with the CDC, with various agencies, because their data is lagging so much, whereas Israel's uh, MOH, Ministry of Health, data is coming out pretty effectively immediately, about as quickly as you can, over and over and over again. And the thing that you need to understand about this is, Israel's got a new government. Brand new government for the first time in a long while. I'm not going to be too political with you all, but I am comfortable saying their previous prime minister was a giant asshole. And uh, he was in charge for quite some time, he had a lot of buddies, and he had a lot of corruption charges and even cases brought against him, but he stayed in power because he had a lot of friends. Uh, This is the non-judgmental, but strictly speaking, about a government system of corruption. This was a corrupt government under uh, BB under Sharon. Uh, This is uh, over now, and a new guy is in there, and I personally have no opinion about him whatsoever. He could literally be more corrupt or less corrupt. This isn't about that. This is about the basic political reality. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to understand Israeli politics, but you get your first new head of state in a long time, especially after the old guy, and numbers start looking really good, you celebrate, you pump. It's exactly what Biden did after Trump, and things started to look good in February and March compared to January, Uh, and now, of course, and then Biden took all the credit in the world. In between right, April through July, uh, Biden was incredibly successful at eliminating the virus. And then suddenly, sometime around August, well, you know, if Trump hadn't uh, starting to come back all over again. So, this is a pretty universal thing. We always blame the last guy, no matter what country we're in. And Israel got down this summer, this spring, into basically no cases. Uh, If you go back and you look at pretty much any source, every every source uh, calculates differently. But if you go back to June, basically the first two weeks of June in Israel, 2021, between June 1st and June 14th is the lowest amount of cases that Israel ever clocks. After it starts tracking COVID, it has more cases in any other two-week period, no matter what period, than June 1st through June 14th. That's how low it is. About three months ago, as of the recording of this broadcast. After that, towards the end of late June, we're talking about new cases coming in, in the dozens to hundreds per day. From the lowest amount that it ever was, which was just, again, as as low as can be. Some cases, literally zero. Uh, some days, literally zero new cases. Uh, are found. And They've got a pretty good testing regime over there. They're testing a lot more per 100,000, or they were, uh, America's recently caught up, uh, than we have been. By the beginning of July, the first week of July, we're back to averaging cases uh, around 100 per day. By the end of July, we're up to thousands of cases a day. And now where we're at in September, Israel is at an all-time high. They have never had as many cases per day. They have had all of their uh, number one uh, biggest testing cases per day happen in the last two weeks, last three weeks. And their all-time high is now in the five-digit range, uh, as well as their daily number. So from the beginning of June, where there's literally zero cases a day, to averaging... 10,000 cases a day. Well, that's just one metric, though, you can say. And you'd be absolutely correct. You'd be 100% right. And this is something that they focus on a lot when they try and give the best case scenario. Oh, sure. Yes, we're sending kids back. Yes, we're getting more infections than ever. Yeah, we're a little bit worried about long COVID. But hey, guys, we promise you, Hospitalizations and deaths are gonna keep going down. We know the cases are gonna keep shooting up, but hospitalizations and deaths—don't you worry, you silly, you silly anti vaxxers or you anti-Semites—they really do call people who talk about this data anti-Semitic. Sometimes it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you're just looking for reasons to hate on Israel and all of us good Israelis. Uh, and I know you, Jack. You've Talked a lot of shit about us killing Arab kids, so we know how biased you are. <laughs> and that's that's pretty much the deflection excuse that any government official is using it pretty much anywhere these days, because everybody's given two big thumbs up, uh, unless they need to be re-elected, in which case they're saying the last guy did it. <laughs> but besides this metric of cases shooting up, shooting up, shooting up, and remember, hospitalizations, deaths, and all the rest lag, Israel's Ministry of Health keeps promising that the number of severe cases are going to go down. And if you look for it, you can find the reporting, because reporters are just absent-minded bullshit artists in every country of the world, and they well-dutifully report whatever a cop or government official says. So there are uh, reports and headlines out there that say, serious cases going down in Israel. And I'm sure by some metric, you can make that case. However, as we go back to the June and July argument and talking about how it's not just cases that are at an all-time high, it's not just students being infected now, uh, you go back and there's basically nobody sick. There's less than 100 people hospitalized with COVID in all of Israel at pretty much any point in time in June and then what happens in july that lagging 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 indicator well it starts shooting up but this is really important because i don't have admitting privileges in israel or any country and i don't know what it takes to classify somebody as seriously sick in israel or any other country it does vary and i've talked about this before there is no international standard countries and uh, you know localities societies make their rules. And yes, somebody has to oversee and tabulate, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of leeway in a lot of countries. Not like ours. We just found out about the rigidity of ours and how that's going to stay, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But in Israel, here's what I can tell you from the outside. No matter what the officials say, no matter how good of a shine they put on it, hospitalizations have continued to increase the entire way through. They have plateaued recently. uh, But they do continue to spike up even after this health ministry keeps saying that they're going to go down tomorrow for two and a half months straight now. But much more importantly than this, there's approximately two dozen ECMO machines, ECMO machines, uh, in all of Israel. These are, the E stands for external, if you want to look that bad boy up. And it's basically just kind of almost a sci-fi gaul chamber as far as i can tell uh you know just it's legitimately almost like a constant transfusion of one's own blood and using this machine to to be the heartbeat and lungs of somebody else so you know how a ventilator is basically somebody else's lungs it's doing their breathing for them because their lungs aren't working well enough because they've got probably at this point bilateral COVID pneumonia if they're on uh, an icu ventilator at this point if they're on breathing because of how serious uh, things are right now. I, in the exact same way, an ECMO machine is basically just keeping somebody alive. It's both both breathing for them and beating their heart and filtering their blood. I mean, again, not a doctor. Definitely go somewhere else for what an ECMO machine does besides you don't want to be on one. You don't want anyone you love probably even near one. Like, if they're even talking about ECMO, somebody you love is in a world of fucking hurt. This is not, this is not a light treatment. This is not a day spa. And of the two dozen ECMO machines in Israel, they're constantly in fucking use. I think it's twenty-seven or twenty-nine off the top of my head. Sorry that I just went from great reporting to Jack reporting. Uh, it's it's just under thirty. It's between. It's right around twenty-five. I remember that much. They're all in fucking use. They're constantly all in fucking use. When somebody dies, they're not in use. But besides that, they're pretty much in fucking use. And the other statistic is there was about two dozen people in the ICU in the summer and spring uh, sorry, in the spring of 2021 in Israel. There's between, like 15 and 30 people in the ICU with COVID in Israel, the whole country. And that number is now this isn't going to sound too scary, because their population's a little over nine million, between 9 and 9.5 million is a good estimate. There's now 238, and the number has constantly increased. From the beginning of July. They can keep saying, and you can keep finding the argument, oh, serious cases, oh, hospitalizations, it'll go down tomorrow. And they do. They've been saying it straight now for 75 fucking days. But the ICU admittance keeps climbing. Will this wave eventually even out in Israel? Yeah, of course it will. This isn't, A doomsday scenario, eventually, numbers have to even out. Eventually, they go down. Pandemics do eventually end. But this is an argument about Israel and its pure numbers that they're reporting, and how they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth while they're doing it. And they're happy to do that. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth because what else can you do? Their option is close down schools, close the society, hurt their economy more. And they're not going to do that. They weren't going to do that to begin with, but they're especially not going to do it under a new government. So they will keep waving this flag saying everything is perfect. Now, here's something else you need to understand about Israel and their death rates and their hospitalization rates. They have already implemented a third-shot regimen. They have that, and again, they've only got about nine, nine and a half million people. They've already gotten that in four million veins as of this recording. So a little under half of their population, and probably the sickest, most scared, most health conscious of their population, has already gotten their third dose. And that number of ICU admittance keeps on climbing. Every single day, the breakthrough infection rate is going to be a different percentage than the day before, but it's never really lower than 25%, and it has gotten as high as 60. To even talk about breakthrough infection rates in in the U.S. with Planned Americans uh, is is to come across as anti-vax, is to come across as a doomsayer, is to come across as a crazy person. And in planet America, we are still somehow pretending, compared to Israel, that there are no breakthrough infections, effectively, that there are absolutely no consequences of long COVID, and that people just really aren't dying that much. This is a very difficult thing for me to not be incensed about. You don't have to believe, as I believe, that this is the biggest reorganization of human society and interaction since World War II and World War I combined. You really don't. That's okay. That's something that I deeply believe, and because I really think it's going to be borne out, therefore it won't matter if you admit it or not. It'll be funny. It'll be funny the more that people deny it, uh, and that does kind of keep me going. But in the meantime, looking at this level of breakthrough infection in Israel, looking at the constantly climbing of ICU admittance, and a fairly constant, uh, constantly either climbing or plateauing of hospital admissions, paints our future. This outbreak has been going on in Israel for nearly 100 consecutive days, and it is as bad as it's ever been, and worse than it's ever been. That is, with a country that has a higher vaccination rate than the U.S. and has a considerable booster advantage. Even if we begin our booster program tomorrow, which we're not, but even if we did begin on September 20th, or even if we began at any point in the near future, logistically speaking, it's going to take us about as long to get the shots in the arms as it did before. We might break our former record, we might get to 4 million shots a day. But 4 million shots a day is still going to take 50 days to get half the fucking population in, eh? I mean, it's not going to be a perfect 4 million every day, so that doesn't match up, match up perfectly. I, don't, I know there's not 400 million Americans. So let me try that math again. 4 million shots a day for 50 days gets you to 200 million, which means there's still 130 million left unvaccinated. So that's a that's a seven-week hardcore drive reaching our former max, which is just not going to happen. And you'll notice I said that Israel's got nine to nine and a half million people, and they've got about four million third shots in. We, unfortunately, are really starting to see that around the world. There's not a lot of third shots in arms yet, or a lot of people offering third shots. But there is a drop-off. And the drop-off varies very much from local, Locality to locality, state to state, nation to nation. In America, for instance, it's about 8%, about an 8% drop between first and second shot. But in Vermont, one of the most vaccinated states, uh, it's only a 4% drop, about 4.5%. So it's half the national average. Other countries are the same. There's a lot of countries, I mean, with Israel, it's about 6 7% drop. So it's a pretty good indicator. It's pretty, it's pretty much on parity with the U.S., the Israeli drop. And soon the vaccination rate will be pretty. Par- oh, we'll have parity as well, so it'll be an even better comparison if we decide to come around that rate. Right. Don't worry, we won't. We'll only compare to Israel when Israel's doing great. Otherwise, they don't exist. Israel existed the spring of 2021. Israel does not exist in the summer and fall of 2021. Shh, just the data, and only the data that says the vaccination is perfect. <laughs> all the other headlines that come out from the same source that say it's ru- that it's not that great or that there's increased flaws and we need boosters. No, 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 no. That, no, that doesn't count. And that's exactly where we're fucking at right now. We're seeing the information come in from Israel. We're using, our administration officials are using the Israeli data because the CDC fucking sucks so much. See a previous episode on that one. and so we've got really good information really good information that we're going to have third shot reluctance in the US how much? don't know but a lot a lot of people don't get their second shot and a lot more it's looking like aren't going to get their third not right away Not in 2021, not before the holiday season. You shouldn't count on it, no matter when we begin. What effect is this going to have for our ICUs? What is this going to have for our hospitalization rate? I don't know, but it can't possibly be good. Even if you assume that the booster is doing absolutely nothing in the veins of the sickest people in Israel, their ICU rate keeps climbing keeps going up consistently throughout the booster and after. There is now talk within the health ministry of Israel to begin the fourth shot campaign. It did not originate from nowhere. It's originating from the same data that we're using to say that nothing bad is going to happen to us. I can't begin to tell you watching this unfold in Israel for the last 100 days, watching this kind of pop on out, that is a pretty mystifying thing. And knowing how little Americans read from the outside world, knowing how much we rely upon headlines, and now discovering how how little our our scientists and health officials are willing to look up from their own little corners of the world, and legitimately are so intellectually incurious and incapable of their positions that they don't even question 50-year-old medicine. They don't even remark upon it. A novel virus comes along, and they continue to, two years in, almost two years in, treat it like the same old. You will, if you search for them, find the most rosy headlines about Israel and about the UK, about how great everything is going there. Alas, the data keeps telling a different story. And this is one of the reasons why, from the beginning, I kind of can't believe that we're called Cassandras or Doomsayers or predictors, or prognosticators, or anything along the lines, we're not doing anything of the sort. If I said a volcano's going to erupt tomorrow, and if it's been dormant or idle for a long time, that's a fucking prediction! (laughs) Y'all remember in the 2000s where Italy, as the nation, that is, the nation of Israel, uh, brought uh, uh, charges against (laughs) against a geologist? For failing to predict a fatal earthquake—that's a true story. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever come across, and the number of people that I lost a lot of respect for because they're like, "Oh yeah, sure," was pretty high. <laughs> this is where I find out that I'm in the wrong, and that the seismologist—I think he was a seismologist, not a geologist now. Then I'm recalling, uh, <laughs> deserved the whole thing. <laughs> he was criminally liable. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so that's Israel as its indicator in the near future, uh, and what's been going on with their 100 days of outbreak, and why they are uh, now recording 10,000 cases a fucking day, every fucking day. And <laughs> they're just going to get so many more of their students sick. And if you're an American, you are paying for that. Just to be clear. You will not be able to get socialized health care in this country, but you will be taxed. Democrats and Republicans will run on taking your money and giving it to the sick Israeli kids. And there's not a fucking thing anybody can do about it. Okay, so I wasn't gonna get too political and then I say that. All right. okay, well, come on, I'm from Planet America, too. This is how we fucking roll, baby. Let's talk about the u k curve because you wouldn't know this from from reading headlines. Uh, Or even the occasional article, there are some journalists in America who are just worthless. Uh, I mean, all over the world, obviously, but they're they're easier to spot here. Um, You would think that the UK had, like, the best COVID summer of all time. You would think that something happens like, oh, the UK thought it was going to be very, very scary. There was a lot of cases, but then it went down very quickly, and everyone's happy. They've opened up, and only Brexit is causing problems now. In fact, I gotta say from the outside, sorry, Brits, uh, your entire sad fucking island seems like a goddamn just tragedy. Just Dickinsonian. Just twenty-four fucking seven, and I'm going to be giving some examples here because some of these are just news stories from the UK. That it's like this can't actually be a fucking real news story, and it's just proof that you know the United Kingdom really isn't nearly as important to the world as the US. Because if the UK were as big and important to the world as the US, sorry, it's not. Um, but these stories would be talked about a lot more. This would be a real. These would be some real examples of. What the fuck is going on? Um, So real quick, let's just talk about the UK curve and why the UK exists just like Israel in this Schrodinger state of the UK doesn't ever do COVID wrong. But if it is wrong, then we're not talking about it. But if it's going well, then the UK is doing COVID great. Pretty much the same curve happens. a it's a little bit earlier in the UK than it is in Israel. But the spring is looking great. And there are parts of the spring where it's not as low as it's ever been. It's not like that beautiful two weeks in Israel in the first two weeks of June 2021. But it's pretty low. We're talking about previous all-time highs of like 60,000 a day. And then we're getting right back down to a few thousand. Now, testing falls off a fucking uh, ledge in the UK uh and so these numbers are definitely not representative if you go to positivity and and uh, you know better metrics than total but you know that's not what we use you 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 get uh, acknowledgement that like oh wow a lot of people were still pretty pretty sick there they just weren't being found out uh but then in june it starts spiking up real heavy and we go from a few thousand in may to a few thousand, to, you know, five to six to seven thousand in June, we reach what looks like a false end to this wave magically towards the end of July, July 21st, where numbers again, previous all-time highs were around 60,000. We get to around 48,000 as a a seven-day rate, as an average, and then it falls off a fucking cliff. And that falls off a fucking cliff is the only time probably you heard about the UK curve. Because it spiked up really, really heavy, just like it always does. And then it dropped off really quickly. And a lot of people want to pretend that this happened in India. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it didn't. What we got here is a totally unexplained spike. And I feel so comfortable saying totally unexplained because I have literally read from dozens of health officials and experts, I have no clue. I mean, maybe they didn't use those exact words, but they've said, uh So I feel very comfortable saying nobody can definitively say why this spike happened, why this spike and why this decline happened. Really, they're both a little confusing. The spike was a little too hot and that descent came so quickly And for two weeks, just two weeks, because July 27th is still pretty high, sorry, July 21st is still pretty high, between July 1st and August uh, 5th, there's a big, big decline and then a plateau. And this is the alleged UK curve. Because something that happens for two weeks in one country is for sure going to be what happens here. Throw out all of the other countries and all of the other sets of data. These two weeks are important, says the American reporter and the American news connoisseur and their editors. Says the whole fucking system, apparently. This drove me batty, and it's one of the reasons why between my pain in my leg and the pain in my ass from reading these that I had to take some time off this summer and drink beer. Because watching people being this willfully stupid is too hard for me. I know why people do it, but you're still being willfully stupid. If someone says it's a lot of fun for them to throw themselves through plate glass windows and they get all scraped up, okay, but I don't have to fucking watch or participate. I'm not going to give you permission. I'm not going to enable you. So I had to tap out. And I know saying stupid is, is a painful word, but what do you want me to say about the fact that people keep looking at a very, very, very specific time period With glee and with attention and saying it means something. And don't you understand? This is the data that. And then all of the other information that they get is just wrong. Doesn't matter. Let's find some excuse. Let's change the subject. I can't do it. So now that we're kind of back to it and Americans are now super pessimistic about COVID, according to the polling, which is good because we need to be, the UK curve did not end because of the two-week period. Isn't that amazing? It went down for two weeks and then it went back up. Nobody could predict, obviously, besides the American journalistic enterprise, that this pandemic actually wasn't over and that vaccines actually weren't going to magically save the fucking day by themselves. That they blunt transmission and they help in the best case that they are seatbelts but if you have a lot of cars on the wrong side of the road, you're going to have a lot of accidents. That's not a wrong side of the road because they drive on the wrong side of the road, either. Joke. Sorry, England, you've got enough issues going on. The UK plateau, this fourth wave, looks to be bigger, to have affected more people than any previously. It does look like it's currently on the decline, but it might not be the positivity rate is decreasing, but not by much. And the crazier thing about this is, throughout the entire, and I do mean the entire goddamn wave that England's in, uh, sorry, the UK is in, apologies, at no point were hospitalizations lower or ICU admissions lower than before. All of that celebration about those numbers going down For two weeks, hospitalizations didn't go down, ICU cases didn't go down, deaths continued to climb. And I can't begin to tell you guys, because it's really not in yet, but as a layman, I feel comfortable saying it as a medical, non-medical scientist, as a non-medical researcher. Uh, Long COVID gets worse over time. If you know somebody, or if you are someone yourself who had a long COVID symptom and you got all the way better, congratulations. That may even be the majority outcome, vaccinated or unvaccinated. Definitely better to be vaccinated for long COVID. It's looking like like pretty clearly like two to one. But (laughs) that doesn't change it. It doesn't change anything about the fact You or your nice story, that so far it's looking like when we have 12 week and 26 week and 52 week studies, that more people are expressing more symptoms and difficulties the further on they go. And I've even seen the most callous, most disgusting officials, i.e., American doctors, start saying, Oh, I'm starting to get pretty worried. That people are just going to blame COVID for everything? Because obviously the American doctor does not listen to the American patient. They listen to their employer. But to hear that you're already, you're already going to be screened out on Planet America. If you decide to opt in and tell your doctor, hey, I'm having some long COVID problem. They're just going to roll their fucking eyes. We do have to talk about this because, unfortunately, I saw a lot of doctors share an article, fairly recently, that said that breakthrough infections were 1 in 5,000. And... Boy howdy, just because the New York Times let somebody put that on their fucking website does not mean it's true. Uh, just really quickly, Pretty much any time, if you go into it and you look at an actual hospital, any any hospital you want, just pick one, should that hospital have a surge of COVID patients, but especially if they're talking about how, you know, they're they're filled to the brim with COVID, doesn't really matter, but especially the second one, and you actually look through the reporting, or you find a doctor who's willing to give you a quote, or you find a government official who's willing to say something you will find consistently that there is something, a quote, like 85% unvaccinated in our ICUs, or 85% of our COVID hospitalizations are unvaccinated. And that is, of course, a fantastic testament to how great the vaccines are working. It's also a testament that the Israeli data is going to come true for us, and that at some point, as it continues to knock out thousands of Americans a day, because it's, because I don't don't know if you know this, but we're up to losing thousands of Americans a day again every day. Just lost 3,400 in one 24-hour period, and it was not all that much of a surge day. Yeah, yeah, there's some back reporting, but goddamn, there's going to be so much more. The amount of breakthrough infections is going to be higher than one in six in the hospital. Pretty much never sank beneath that in Israel. It's climbing, climbing, climbing in the UK. We did our vaccines on Plan America pretty much the exact same way they did in Israel before they began their booster program. They used different vaccines in a different way in the UK, by and large, by and large. I'm hoping that presenting you with this information will allow you to live your most informed life, whatever that is. I don't know or feel like I can change anybody's mind. I really don't think so at this point. Everyone's dug in. You believe what you believe. But mathematically speaking, just like, you know, I kind of talked about how funny it was that reinfections couldn't happen, and people quoted that for 14, 15 fucking months straight. Reinfections can't happen. Reinfections can't happen. And people would say that at the same time they'd go, look, all these people are vaccinated. Look, all of these cases are coming in and nobody can get reinfected. Well, then how are countries like Brazil sustaining this amount of infection? Uh, You're dumb. This Is how? Duh. And it really just takes thinking, just really, just five to ten seconds to go well if this country has x amount vaccinated <laughs> and the vaccines don't have breakthroughs and it's confirming this amount of cases which is an actual number that it's doing it's not a hypothetical <laughs> then then obviously there's it's either having either your breakthrough infection rate is wrong or or people are just are just getting reinfected like motherfuckers now, that's back when there wasn't a lot of vaccine around that people could make the argument, ah. but you're not hearing that argument anymore. Thank Christ, we have now moved past reinfections. infections. We are still hearing, unfortunately, from a lot of people that you just there's still no such thing as breakthrough infection. But statistically speaking, how can you actually believe that breakthrough infections are 1 in 5,000? But COVID hospitalizations are about ten to fifteen percent. You're just saying that every breakthrough infection every breakthrough infection leads to somebody getting hospitalized and going to the ICU. If it's one in five thousand Do you do you understand what you're saying? Like really, the argument you're making because if it's one in 5,000 in a country of 325 million, just lop off the zeros. I know people don't like doing math, but you're taking off three zeros. So now you've got a five to go into 325,000, and that goes in pretty good. You're saying that 80,000 people in this country, eighty to 90,000 people have experienced a breakthrough infection after vaccination, obviously by definition. And that's it. What I? How? 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 How do you have an education and say that with a straight face? How? How do you look someone in the eye and say, "Uh, only eighty thousand Americans have gone. One in five thousand. One in five thousand. That's it." In the exact same way that I was exasperated as shit about people not t- taking reinfection seriously, about not taking the new uh, mutations and variants seriously. And, you know, respectfully, it's now biting you on in the ass, most all of you in the ass. Uh, people are not taking this seriously at all. I will one day have a big rant about long COVID because I will one day have the information I need to make my case that I can't now. But I can make the case right here, right now, pretty easily, I think with all the information that you've heard today, that our government officials have no fucking clue. Our media is entirely untrained. Our metrics and our data is completely inaccurate and is being handled by health departments that are goddamn empty. And yet, all of the news is positive. Everyone is just saying, hey, man, just get the cure. If you get vaccinated, you're fine. Well, if you get vaccinated and sometimes wear a mask. Well, if you get vaccinated and wear a mask, and, you know, you're pretty smart about it, Well, is where we're at with it still being spread with a positive spin. Yes, our ICUs are burgeoning. <laughs> yes, we are rationing care. And in fact, our healthcare system has already collapsed. As I talked about by the definition of last year, what is the collapse of a healthcare system? By definition, any healthcare system so that it can't be wiggled around, it's when people die because they're not being treated. That's a collapse of the system. You don't have to be with me and believe that America is a blood for money Holocaust medical system. You really don't, although you should be. That's correct. You do have to understand, however that the numbers of staffed beds are optimistic because you don't know if that staff is coming in tomorrow. You do have to understand that the data that we have and all of the money that we had to upgrade it hasn't taken effect yet. And you also have to understand that two administrations now in America and in Israel have just blindly walked through these waves. They do it with such confidence and arrogance and they will blame you for your own sickness and death when it's all over in the past tense. As, they, as Trump does now, I promise you, Biden will in the future and so will Biden administration officials. They'll talk about how horrible it was. But just like all the officials I quoted in the first part of this argument kept referring to COVID in past tense, That's what our government officials did as well, all throughout the spring and at the beginning of the summer as well. They also used past tense. I talked about this and I pointed out before, when somebody says COVID in past tense, they are telling you who they are. Okay? They are telling you who they are in the same way as if they use a racial slur. Just real casually, just throw that shit out. Real easy. You know? It's the same way. And because of that, we are going to continue to suffer. This wave in the UK and the US might be dying down. I highly doubt it, though, and it's probably not going to fall anywhere near former lows. And if you're hearing this and you're saying, yeah, 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 that's called endemic, no, I'm saying it's going to continue to shutter hospitals it's going to continue to wreak havoc all across the goddamn nation america's COVID numbers now let's go over them real quick one thing we need to talk about in america and the fact that we haven't moved to this so far into this fucking pandemic is a goddamn shame is that you really should not use current confirmed cases as your goddamn touchstone It's not a great way to go about predicting Delta. Not COVID in general, but definitely not Delta. There was an old rule that has now been discarded because it's too hard that the WHO came up with in 2020. And that is to say, if your positivity rate is above 5%, you don't know what's going on. With Delta, it's so much more pernicious, it would be clear that that number would have to go down, Alas, it has not been revised to the best of my knowledge. Either way, it's a way better number to talk about than total cases. Yes, I know I use confirmed cases all the time. I'm trying to get it across to people who want to use the same metric the whole way through. A way better number is to talk about positivity or the R-naught, how many people you think you're infecting per infected person. That gives you a way clear answer. And in Israel, it is what they use over confirmed cases. They will talk about eye-popping numbers and eye-watering numbers when they do pop up. However, they like using the R-naught. They like saying, oh, see, it's down below one. Everybody go out and party. Oh, it's above one. Everybody stay home and don't hug your relatives. Yeah, that's overly dramatic, but really, they, it's pretty much the tone of it uh, in both the reporting and healthcare ministries. In the UK, no matter how low their testing went or fell, and ours fell much, much lower in the U.S. over this spring. Uh, by By July, there was basically no fucking testing going on in this whole fucking country. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. Hey, there's no cases. There's no testing. Yeah, there's no cases. There's no testing. Yeah, there's no cases. You made fun of Trump for saying that. Yeah! <laughs> in the UK, their numbers never really uh, never really go above 4% all that much. It does happen occasionally, but 4% positivity is about as high as it goes in the UK, and then things happen. People stay home, or the government locks everybody in, or, 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 or. In America right now, we're talking about constantly having, throughout pretty much this entire wave, like pretty much from the second week of July on, always above 5%. And lately, always above 10%. And in the last week, we've had a couple of days where we've hit 15. That's a 15% positivity rate on COVID. When 5% on OG, it's Delta, where 5% on the OG stuff was considered you're losing it. You've lost the battle. You need to change your tactic. But now we're shooting above that. And not only that, the positivity rate does continue to con- uh, climb. It plateaus and it climbs. Here's a metric and analysis that I have not seen anywhere. All the COVID rating I've done, and I've actually not come across this. This is 100% original analysis. Are you proud of me? No, yet, you're not. One thing to note about our previous highs when it comes to hospitalizations and ICU admissions is after COVID hit, there was always a kind of baseline level, a banked amount of several thousand people in ICUs of hospitalized, uh, you know, 10 to 20,000 hospitalized people. Besides late spring, that's true of pretty much any point in America after the outbreak started. Why is that an important metric? Why does that matter? Uh, why are we going to dig into this one real quick? Well, our previous all-time high of ICU infections was, or, uh, as far as ICU infections, of ICU admissions was really high in the U.S. You ready? Somewhere around 28,500, depending on the source. About 28,500 people concurrently in the U.S. were in ICUs with COVID. It was breaking our system. This is late to mid-January, mid to late January, okay? But again, it came, that wave came from a baseline level of 8,000 ICU cases. We never really, towards the end of 2020, fell beneath 8,000. It happens occasionally, but not really. In October, Suddenly, hospitalizations start going way, way up. This is the third wave. This is the beginning of it. This is where it starts getting stoked before the holidays. So, actually, Halloween was kind of a super spreader event in the U.S., but nobody talked about it. Anyway, uh, we go from, in early October, about 8,000, like I said, pretty baseline, to the end of October, about 11,000. So, it's a steep incline as a percentage, as a total number of percentage, but it's not that scary yet. And then it shoots up at that point, uh, again, within the next 8 to 10 weeks later, uh, up to that 28,000, and then it pretty rapidly falls from there. Um, And we get back down, again, this spring to less than half of what we had before, vaccinations doing their job, and we get to about 4,000 a day. Why is that important? Why is he he going over all these numbers? Is he going to give me a math quest effort? Yeah, kind of, actually, sorry. You take 8,000 right? You you subtract from uh, 28,500, you're left with an increase of ICU admissions, a swell from their low point to their high point of 20,500. Yeah, pretty simple shit. Well, that's what's pretty fucking interesting to me about this surge and what we're in right now, even though we're acting like it's not a big deal. We had a baseline of 3,500 this spring it gets pretty low. And then the July 4th cases start coming in, but hospitalizations and ICUs start rising immediately. Immediately. Meaning people were sick before the 4th of July. That's not the typical narrative. What's most important about this is it jumps up from 3,500 to 25,500 recently and stayed somewhere between 25,000 and 26,000 since it got there. This means that we have had a bigger surge of ICU patients than we did the entire last wave, the bad wave, quote-unquote. Not only that, but listen again to what I'm saying about when it happened. The surge begins... In wave three, the ICU admissions, this is not cases, this is just ICU, okay? Both hospitalizations and ICU track one another, so it's both, but this is hospital, this is not general hospitalization, this is ICU, this is people at death's door when it comes to COVID, usually speaking. This is people whose lungs literally are not working, or worse, to the point that they're getting help pretty frequently, pretty fucking frequently for ICU uh, uh, admissions for COVID, yeah? First week of October, 8,000. Second week of January, all-time high. That is all of October, all of November, all of December. That's 13 fucking weeks. 15 weeks is what I'm saying in between the two numbers and a jump of 20,500 admissions. From the first week of July until now, we have, what is that, it's way less than fucking 15 weeks, it's 12. So it's a shorter time frame, and then total number jumped up 22 or sorry, 2,000 more, 10 percent more. With every ICU bed you fill, it's harder to put someone in the next one. That's why hospitals are calling around, and there's so many scary stories about it, and people dying because they can't find beds anywhere. Every bed you fill up, this is very difficult news for Business Insider to understand, because they will run headlines that go, like, back-to-back. Like, on Monday, they will run a headline going, Hospital admissions, higher than ever in some area. And then, like, two days later, they'll be all like, Hospital admissions, stay steady. Yeah, dumb shits. Yeah, you dumb shits. They yeah. Water is fucking wet, isn't it? You don't, what? You, you can't admit any more people to a hospital and then you say it's steady? What kind of weird world is this? <laughs> Sorry. I really do get very passionate about the fact that nobody understands data. I I understand that I shouldn't, but I do. And I have since I was a young child that people didn't get this shit. And now they're running everything, instead of just bullying me. (laughs) So it's hard. I haven't seen that analysis anywhere. That we've jumped up 2,000 more ICU admissions during this wave, and that we did it way, way, way quicker. Weeks quicker. And that it's staying there this time. It's not slowly, slowly rising up. It quickly rose. It rose to the point that it could basically not be sustained anymore. If you're saying, but you talked about how the previous wave was higher, yes. I'm also saying a lot of these beds are now unstaffed. A lot of these beds are now unstaffed. I don't know how many, and I don't know for how long. But the reports that come out when it comes to a staffed bed, especially an ICU bed, those rely upon city and state metrics. And there is a dashboard that you can go to that depending on the day, has somewhere around 6,000 different hospitals reporting for, for HHS, health and human services. Uh, but I, I I am not relying on that, and neither should you. Let's call that an optimistic an optimistic counting of how many cases or how many ICU beds are available. Let's call that an optimistic version of what's out there. Yeah? That's the first thing. The second thing is, this wave is much more even with America. Previous waves hit particular regions. It felt like it was hitting everywhere all at once, but there were some places that got off pretty scot-free during the third wave. At some points during this wave, the fourth wave in the U.S., all 50 states... We're increasing their case count at the same time. That's never happened before. And that should tell you just about how persistent this wave is going to be. Again, there is a gentle plateauing and decrease going on in the UK, and there may be one going on in the US as well. But our data sucks. We have a way higher positivity rating than the UK, over double, sometimes over triple we have a much, much higher positivity rating than just about any country in the world. Now let's talk about the Indian curve, which did not get all that much press because it's not fun when India is doing good. It's only fun when India is burning bodies. One thing that you have to keep in mind about India getting such a COVID grip uh, compared to other countries is Last year, when they did their shutdown in India, they basically pulled the pants off over a hundred million workers. A hundred million rural workers who go to various uh, cities and and industrial districts, and they work, and they send money home to their family. Tale as old as time. They were left in the cold, and basically, or I guess the hot, because it was the summer, and they had to trek back, often on foot, for weeks to get back home and wait out COVID. Why am I talking about that in 2020 when that wasn't the bad wave? Because when people realized what the fuck was going on with this wave in India this year, they ran back home real fucking quick. When people realized what was gonna happen uh, and and they thought, oh, I'm not gonna get caught out again. They took the first bus, they took the first ferry, they took the first fucking transport they could back home and they got back home. And a lot of people stayed. Their agricultural fucking goddamn industry is in shambles. Obviously, there's more reasons for COVID than that. A lot of people lost their entire livelihood. And you will be hearing about how much this set India back in poverty and life. And uh, 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 uh. For the rest of your life, if you want to, probably, there will be Indian scholars studying how much this set people back for a long time. That is the untold story in the West of India's quote-unquote COVID victory with another wave looking like it's brewing and starting up right about now, pretty soon here. There is a huge humanitarian cost to what they paid. Huge. And that needs to be kept in mind. There's going to be a huge human cost for COVID on planet America. It's not going to be done the same way. But I propose to you simply this. There are approximately 50 million American school kids. If only 1% per day get long COVID in such a way that that's debilitating, which pretty much seems like a given to me at this point, how out of control it is in this country right now, That is. Of course, 500,000 a day. You're saying that's too high, then make it one in a thousand students. And you're still talking about 50,000 a day. One in 10,000 once a week? Still 5,000 a fucking week. That's such a big fucking number. And it's going to continue to rage. There is absolutely nothing that any of us can say or do that stops any of it. Our our government has decided. I can't stress this enough. I know politically speaking, a lot of you cannot stand it. But both the Biden and Trump administration, yes, both, both, yes, both, have totally failed us, is my view. And they both laughed and talked in past tense whenever there was a lull. And they both immediately got tunnel vision whenever the numbers were high. On something else, anything but this, really. Anything besides saying that this is going to be a huge, costly, difficult problem that's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. Because there's no fun in saying that. A Dickinsonian update from the UK. Well, first off, just for a little bit of fun, everybody hates Margot Thatcher. Doesn't? Doesn't everybody? Everybody hates (laughs) Margot Thatcher. Not a video gamer? Can't stand the modern games? Well, maybe you should play something from 1990s featuring Margaret Thatcher in her true form, a devil in the tenth circle of hell. The original Doom, not Doom 2016, not Doom Eternal, the original... Guy on the front casting a fireball, though it looks like his hands on fire with one hand and shooting a, I think a Uzi, Mac Ten, with the other, a uh, bunch of demons. Uh, that Doom has now got a uh, next week coming, a Margot Thatcher, a Margie, a Maggie, a Maggie Thatchy, uh, <laughs> mod, uh in which uh, the tenth circle of hell is the U.K., it is England and Northern Ireland. <laughs> they specified northern ireland which was just so fucking it was just the cream on crop of that one to me so you hate margaret thatcher uh, that's a that's a great that's a great way to get that out of your system i'm going to be playing this it's totally free i'm very excited <laughs> they they're not taking any payment for it and they're even suggesting like you give to charities like you know people that help out like the coal miners and shit that she <laughs> It's so fucking funny. Everything about it is so good to me. So that's the first thing that you need to know about the UK. Second thing you need to know about the UK is here's how bad the work shortage is from Brexit and COVID. Because it is both. Uh, people pretend it's not. But it is. Um, they are now... Like, forget everything you've heard, if you haven't, about truckers throwing shit out their window. <laughs> While waiting in three-day-long lines so that they can go into France, forget everything you've read about UK and and Germany uh, falling out of love and no longer being a, a a preferred trade partner with the Germans, the UK UKers, because there's just Brexit is just like why would we why would we buy anything from you fuck you <laughs> why would we go through all that red tape fuck you that's my German impression. Uh, forget everything you've learned about all of that, because this story, I think, exemplifies just how fucking like workhousey, just how just how goddamn Bob Crachetty it's getting over there. <laughs> there's a contemplation to kill 70,000 pigs because there's not enough people to kill pigs. I'm going to say that again. There are so few people to kill pigs that they're thinking about having to kill 70,000 extra pigs. And I don't know if you've ever been on a farm, or if you've ever, like, worked, like, on a ranch or something. And if, you, if you've never seen a pig, you think wolves are big. You think you're scared of, like, a coyote or something. Pigs are fucking huge. They're hundreds of pounds each. They are massive motherfuckers. Pigs are big scary. Big, big bad. <laughs> 70,000 pigs too many is a lot of pigs. It's a lot of pork to throw away. And to do so because you can't find the laborers is fantastic. But of course, in the UK, just like the US, capitalism always wins. And the Conservative Party is always on top. So, there's a solution. Don't worry. We're not going to have to kill the pigs. We'll hire people to kill the pigs so we don't have to kill the pigs. Instead, we'll kill the pigs. But they won't really hire them. (laughs) They'll force them. Because, again, they can't find the workers. It's not as though they haven't advertised. It's not as though they weren't having the budget. They just can't find them. So instead, we're just going to force our UK prisoners to kill pigs. Oh, they're not using that language, of course. They're talking about what an, invest- what an incredible opportunity it is in the workforce and how it helps recidivism and all the rest, but uh, that's, that's the long and the short of it. There's a real-life goddamn consequence and just this tiniest little glimmer into the world of the future, I think, I suspect. Uh, what do we do when we can't flip burgers in America? I guess we're just going to start arresting teenagers and making them do it for community service. Problem solved. We figured it out. There was this flight attendant who had a really bad day in the late 2000s. And he cursed out all the passengers. And then he grabbed two beers. And he pulled the emergency cord and jumped out the slide. And I, he was my hero. That he got on the, I mean, he got on the loudspeaker and everything. He's like, fuck you, fuck you all. Ah! And then he, and then he pulled, you know, the emergency door open. The slide deployed. He grabbed two beers off a cart and he jumped down it. Doesn't sound like a true story, but it really happened. See, in the past, it was like, oh, well, you know, he's lucky he didn't get arrested. In the future, like, that's what you're going to do to quit, right? Your flight attendant job, (laughs) because who can blame you at this point? (laughs) And then you'll get arrested, and then they'll get sentenced, and then you'll be sentenced to being a fucking flight attendant. (laughs) And every heir will be con air. Because I can't tell you this, the rich are getting pretty pissed off that they're not able to get everything the moment that they snap their fucking fingers, right? They, they're not—they're not real happy with this new world, and it's gonna keep intensifying. Because just yesterday in the U.S., thirty-three hundred people fucking died officially, probably closer to five to six thousand unofficially, uh, and in the U.S., we're at one point two million excessive deaths. What is everyone excessively dying of? It's a mystery only 650,000 from covid though don't you worry about that other 550 if we pretend that they're not real then they're not uh so that's that's my little bit of of humor at the end it's not it's gallows humor cuz you know your pig might be killed by somebody who's about to be sent to the fucking gallows but you know that's 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 don't worry america will survive if we kill enough of our immigrant meatpackers Eventually, we'll just send in new ones. I mean, we already call them illegals anyway.